Hey everyone, welcome back to The V Word. This is In Their Shoes, a mini episode that takes a little bit of a deeper dive into one particular condition or one person's story as it relates to women's health. Today we've got an interview with Megan Keister, a comedian, actress, and activist. You can download her book, The Indignities of Being a Woman, which is an Audible original at www.audible.com. And you can listen to her stand-up comedic album on her website, inoffensivecomedian.com. She recently wrote an article for Experience Magazine on her decision to get sterilized and all the hurdles that she faced in accessing that care as a younger, childless woman. Executive producer Bethany Bonilla has this interview with her now. Cool. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to chat. We'll kind of just get going. You know, what led you to write that article for Experience? Uh I, in that, I write a lot of articles about my personal experience with myriad issues up to and including my reproductive health and body. Uh, It seemed appropriate. And especially when I was going through the process of actually trying to secure it and getting it. And I would talk to other women about it. There's so many people who don't really know anything about it and looking on the internet to try and find other person, other people's narratives about going through it themselves. I didn't really find much there. So I felt like if I wrote something about it, it could potentially help someone who was trying to go through the same process to see what it was like, things of this nature. Yeah. And for people who haven't read it, where would you say this story of like your decision um, to seek the procedure, but also your your thoughts about your fertility, where would, where would that start for you? Well, where it started, was basically... Um, when I was in my late teens, I was told by an OBGYN that I was infertile, which kind of made sense because my mother had a lot of fertility issues when she was younger, too. She has endometriosis. So uh, I felt basically that I just took that at face value and operated as though I was for the entirety of my adult life. And I never got pregnant. And I'd also I'd only been on birth control maybe once or twice. I can't really remember, but it didn't really sit right with me. I didn't enjoy it. And it felt like, well, if I was infertile anyway, it was sort of pointless to continue with it. Um, and I had never gotten pregnant until I turned 35. And I did accidentally, of course, and had to go through the whole obtaining a abortion thing and decided I never wanted to do it again because I never wanted to have kids in the first place. So therefore, my thoughts immediately went to securing tubal ligation surgery. Can you share a little bit about like, at what point did you feel like you were, you realized, you know what, children don't exist in my, in Mm. my future? When did those thoughts come about? I mean, I pretty much never wanted children. I never saw myself Mm -hmm. as a motherly figure, even when I was a little girl. Um, And those feeling, you know, they say, well, you just wait on it. Maybe eventually you'll want them. But the older I got, the more I was sort of secure in my decision to not have children. And there really isn't any universe I could think of in which I would enjoy parenting or think I would be a competent parent, you know, enough to necessitate bringing life into this world. Right. And and so when you made that decision, can you share some of the challenges you faced when you realized, oh, there's... um, you know, a financial aspect. And then it's the case of even finding a doctor. What was that reality? Sure. Um, Well, I'm on Medi-Cal. So I had to go through the process of getting a referral from my 
general practitioner in order to talk to somebody about getting sterilized. And it took a while to get the referral in the first place, maybe a couple months. And when I actually got the consultation meeting, um, I was informed that I would have to sign a series of forms and do them exactly uh, correctly. Otherwise, they could be rejected. And there was a 30-day waiting period after I had signed those forms in order to potentially schedule the procedure. And the fact that it is considered a, um, uh, what is the word? The fact that it's not a necessary, let's say, quote unquote, procedure, the fact that it's um, voluntary meant that uh, there were no assurances that I would be able to schedule it as soon as I wanted to. And also there was the issue of finding a doctor who was willing to do it. If you've already had children before, it's fairly easy to get uh, sterilized. But if you haven't, then, you know, there's all of these thoughts. Perhaps you will in the future. Are you sure? I'm sure it's just like for litigious reasons they're trying to cover themselves in case you decide, you know, I don't know. I actually did want to have kids and I was misled and et cetera, et cetera. But um, what's interesting, that waiting period, does that serve as sort of like a catch for just in case you change your mind, you have some time. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's very yeah. interesting. The the 30-day waiting period, which also, I mean, I don't think this is something that uh, is established for people that have private insurance. If you have private insurance, I'm sure you could get any doctor to do whatever kind of voluntary surgery you want up to and including plastic surgery. But when it comes to people who are on public assistance, basically, which is what Medi-Cal is, there is the 30-day waiting period. And it seems pretty evident that it exists because they want to make sure that you're sure, you know? Mm -hmm. So actually when it comes to the 30 day waiting period, because most women who get the surgery, um, get it after they've just given birth. And so if you want to get the surgery right after you've given birth, you have to make sure all your ducks in a row and you have, you give birth at, you know, exactly the time and date that you think that you're going to, because if anything has happened out of that 30 day window, mm -hmm. you don't, they won't do the procedure. So it actually ends up that a lot of women that want to get the procedure after they've given birth, a lot of women on public assistance, um, if something goes wrong in that 30 days, then they don't do the procedure. And I was looking up the stats and it's about 40% of those women actually end up to have more children that they theoretically don't want in the future. Wow. which is <laughs> pretty intense. Yeah. And when I uh, was reading, it seems like some medical guidelines kind of vary by state. Um, did you face anything like one thing I read was like a, a mental health consul consultation, which just sounds, I mean, right. the fact that uh, a request for sterilization would uh, – you know, trigger this mental health <laughs> consultation. You, you don't just, want kids. You must be insane. Yeah. You know, it's, it really speaks to the, the bigger issue. Well, it's that, it's that the, the law is, and I believe this is in every state, if you're on Medi-Cal or whatever form it is in your state, the law in order, if you want to get sterilized, you have to be over 18 and of sound mind. So not incredibly mentally ill, I guess, but that's the only law. So the fact that some doctors choose to not do this procedure by choosing for whatever reason, you know, let's say moral or whatever they want to say, by choosing not to do the procedure, they're actually violating the law because the law dictates that you only need two things in order to get sterilized, to be over 18 and of sound mind. And did you face uh, denials? I know from reading the story you did. Can you talk about that? Well, they made it very difficult, huh. I guess that's what I could say, in that 
you know, when I first got the consultation, um, the doctor just kept really trying to push uh, birth control in lieu of sterilization. Ah, so not a mostly, straight up, yeah, right. <laughs> interesting. Well, mostly an IUD, but also she informed me that, you know, uh, I told her my whole piece that I never wanted to have kids, et cetera, et cetera. And she said that she would say that she would, quote, advocate for me, end quote, to another doctor in order to try and find someone who is willing to do this procedure on a woman who had never given birth. And I found that really bizarre, the word advocate, like, you know, basically plead my case and hope that some benevolent doctor would actually do what legally they should do was exactly. insane. Yeah. But I mean, that it kind of made sense, though, mm-hmm. after I um, after I well, when I finally got the procedure, I hadn't realized that um, the hospital where I was sent by Medi-Cal and where I eventually got this done was a Catholic hospital. So that would probably explain why some doctors would be reticent to do the procedure. But that's a huge conflict of interest, like, you know, sending someone who's on public assistance to, like, a religious hospital in the first place. Yeah, that's that's something. It's interesting. That, <laughs> I think you mentioned this er- earlier. There's a lot of technically permanent other, you know, elective sort of surgeries and treatments like plastic surgery um, where people aren't refusing treatment or or, or right. bringing up all these alternatives. Yeah, it seems like sterilization um, and the tubal ligation surgery, uh, which maybe we should get into, is is different. Um, but it, it is a permanent uh, surgery. Do you want to maybe talk a bit, ex- explain the procedure? Sure. Well, I should also say, in terms of the permanence of it, one of the primary forms of birth control they kept pushing on me was an IUD. They kept saying, well, you should just get an IUD uh, and, it, you know, you can have it for a few years. Um, and it's basically, you know, it'll protect you from pregnancy. And I kept saying, I don't want any form of birth control. I want sterilization. Um, but they also offered during the 30 day waiting period to put an IUD in, which was like, Okay, so what you want me to put an IUD in for thirty days and then have it removed again? It was just so bizarre. But I guess was, that's more an aside than anything. Yeah, else. it was like, your test trial, you know. <laughs> yeah, because the best part about an IUD is having it inserted and removed. If we could just like have that happen as fast as possible, that would be so sick. Maybe it'll just yeah. be so fun. You'll love it and refer all your friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, they'll give like twenty five bucks per referral or something. I could do a side grift. Exactly. Uh, But the procedure itself, I mean, it's just basically an outpatient procedure. Um, So you're in the hospital for a day, basically. Um, But there were a number of things they didn't really tell me before I went under. Like, for example, the anesthesiologist didn't tell me that they would be um, inserting a breathing tube in while I was under. He basically just told me that they would put me under via a mask and that wasn't the case they actually injected me to put me under so I just passed out scared mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh when I woke up most of like the um most of the negative effects I had after the surgery were related to putting a breathing tube in like there's not really anything inherently um uncomfortable about the procedure itself because they just go in through your belly button and they sever the uh, connector between the fallopian tubes and the uterus. So it's the surgery itself isn't really that invasive, but when you feel like crap afterward, it's pretty much all as a result of having to go under to get it done. 
Were there any uh, side effects you knew about that that scared you a bit or anything you were uh, anticipating happening or? If anything, I mean, they really downplayed it talking to the doctor is sort of like the implication was that I would be able to ride a bike again immediately afterward and play the piano or whatever the hell. Like they mm-hmm. sort of said that this is a non-invasive outpatient procedure and you'll be basically ready to get up and walk around immediately mm-hmm. afterward. But I mean, I found it a little more debilitating than that. <laughs> What's What sort of pushed you away from other forms of birth control and, um, and you you touched on this, but like turned sure. you on to a more permanent solution that, you know, is, is very different from something like being on the pill for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. Well, basically every, all of my female friends that I had talked to about birth control had just a litany of horror stories. And it seemed like they spent their entire adult reproductive lives just jumping from birth control to birth control because the side effects, you know, were pretty bad. And they're always like searching for the perfect one, but couldn't really find one. And when I was looking into birth control myself, reading reviews of different ones online with other women talking, nothing, I mean, there's no perfect birth control. And the fact that I don't want to have children ever in the first place meant that taking it would be pretty much superfluous. So in order to lessen or actually eliminate the ability to have side effects as a result of taking something I don't even want to take in the first place, that made the most sense to just undergo the surgery. And, you know, it, it's interesting to to talk about, you know, the potential costs of an unplanned pregnancy and side effects of birth controls. What else is kind of, it feels a little crazy is having this discussion with you about just having like a sense of autonomy and taking control of your body when like that could also just be it. It could be that you, outside of weighing the cost of either the decision to do the surgery or not, you also just should have this control and it's just... right. Uh, that's what's kind of crazy about having this, doing this interview and, you know, uh, hearing you, you know, gain full control. It was such a challenge and we're, you know, we're in 2019. I mean, it is sort of indicative of, you know, the medical profession and just the world in general doesn't take women at their word, you know. Mm-hmm. What month did you ask? And then how long did it take you before you finally had a doctor willing to perform the surgery? Mm, okay. So I first, well, I first asked for a referral. It would have been in September. Mm-hmm. And I believe I had to wait about either one or two months to get the referral. And then once I got the referral, I went to the OBGYN. And that's when I, the 30 day waiting period had to transpire. And after the 30 days, they were able to find a doctor, a female doctor who was willing to do it. And after that, I believe it took either one or two more months to actually get it on the schedule and get the surgery because it's an elective procedure. So you had to sort of wait until there was a gap in the surgery schedule. So all told, I mean, almost half a year, Mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah. And so, I mean, out of, it seems like you, you know, had to unfortunately have sort of an argument in your head of why you're doing this. And I don't, not sure how many times you repeated yourself, but if if any like physicians are listening to your story and your interview, what would you hope that they learn and, and how this was handled and how maybe they should handle it? 
I mean, the best way to treat all patients is to care about them and take them at their word. I mean, if somebody is telling you something, I either feel something, I want something, I think something, listen to them and don't challenge them about it. Mm -hmm. Because especially for something as important as choosing whether to not to be a mother, it's not like I woke up one day, but you know what, just on a whim, I think I want to get sterilized. Screw it. And this is something that I've been thinking about not wanting to have children my entire reproductive life. So the implication that I don't know what I want when this is something so important and something that I've thought about for so many years is insulting for you to imply that I don't know what I want, you know? Mm -hmm. And even after, you know, like I said, even after I was, when I was in the hospital, they just kept asking me over and over again, are you sure? It's like, yeah, I'm in the hospital. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm ready to get this done. That's not, I'm not going to change my mind 30 mm-hmm. seconds before you put me under. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And you opened up your piece saying, you know, I woke up thinking, what if today was the day, you know, I thought right. <laughs> <laughs> I decided, nope, not happening. And it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't the day. No. Um, but regret was something that came on, came up in a, almost every conversation you had um, with a medical professional. Right. I mean, yeah, I, it's not like I've sat and thought about, did I make the right choice after mm-hmm. I made the choice? No, because the choice that I made was basically I chose to return to what I thought was already my previously scheduled existence. You mm-hmm. know, I already mm-hmm. thought that I wasn't able to have kids. I already right. operated like I wasn't going to. I had already reconciled that. I actually enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. I thought it was pretty cool to not be able to get pregnant, frankly, because I never wanted to get pregnant. And so after I got pregnant, then I realized, oh, well, I have to take measures to get back to what my normal was. And so this is just a return to normalcy for me. I haven't thought anything about it yeah. since I got it. And what, have you gotten any interesting feedback from the people around you? Uh, everyone's been accepting of it. I mean, it's not like, you know, my grandparents are going to challenge me or anything. (laughs) I've already made it pretty clear my entire adult life that I wasn't going to have kids. So everyone's already accepted that. And actually, I mean, it was pretty cool. Like when I told my grandmother that I got it and she is, you know, like a California Republican thinks, uh, Ronald Reagan's an actual cowboy type, (laughs) you know, person. She like literally said, you know, it's your body, your choice. And I was like, damn, all right. All That's right. Sick. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, do you happen to know any, are there any men in your life who have shared that they've had a vasectomy and, and the response that they received in seeking that? Um, it's, it's shocking that I don't know any men who have had vasectomies and all men should have vasectomies basically <laughs> until they're ready to have kids. Like vasectomy should be compulsory because you can reverse it whenever you want. It's like even less invasive than, you know, it's much less invasive, of course, than like getting your tubes tied. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the fact that more men aren't doing this and, you know, it could profoundly change so many lives just by like going into an office once and getting something snipped is insane. Yeah. Did this... Um... And this is just a question I, I'm asking because I'm always curious about people's sex ed. Mm-hmm. Was this ever brought up? Like, how did you even know about this procedure? I'm assuming this did not come up in your sex ed, unless you had an awesome sex <laughs> education of, like, my own. Um, oh, no way. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I think most sex ed is that 
is like you want 100 percent uh assurance you're not going to get pregnant be abstinent yep i mean even in california that's still still sort of taught like yeah if you don't want to dance with the devil don't have mm-hmm. sex <laughs> i didn't know like I, yeah so i wasn't like raised being told about this option and really like the only instances in which you ever read about sterilization are in terms of eugenics basically mm-hmm. so there's always been this you know i knew about as a sociology major i knew about the sinisterness mm-hmm. of you know sterilization being used to punish the poor but yeah it's really only ever talked about in that context you don't really have a lot of women or the media talking about it yeah. generally thank you so much for for writing this and being willing to chat with me no problem um cool well thanks so much megan yeah no problem if you've liked this episode of The V Word, please visit us at www.vwordpod.com and listen, rate, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at vwordpod. This podcast was written and produced by the V Word team, Dr. Jennifer Conti, Dr. Erica Cahill, and Bethany Bonilla. Thanks for listening.